Welcome to the Teachers Matter podcast, where we share stories, strategies, and wisdom to inspire your teaching and enhance your life. We'll go beyond the theory by sharing tips, tools, and actions that will help you to create a positive difference in your life at home and school. With your hosts, Karen Tui Boys and Megan Gallagher. Hello, everyone. We are here to talk to you today a little bit differently than we have done in the past. We're going to talk to you about a book that we've been reading. So I know that those people who know us, both Karen and I, dedicated bibliophiles or book readers. And the, one of the books that we've been reading lately is Disruptive, Stubborn, Out of Control by Bo Hjelskoff Alvin. And it is a fantastic book, really easy read, but also quite confronting. Is that what you'd say, Karen? Oh, yes, it really challenged some of my beliefs around teaching, around learning, and some of the things I've even been teaching for a long time. It was like I've been shaken and stirred, which I love because I love being able to uh, uh, look at my own views and my own thinking, and uh, he's really done that in this book. Isn't that brilliant? I know. I love that. <laughs> we actually use this as one of our book club books, and so the conversations that we were having with the whole group were really um really quite intense and it, it took us all into that depth of reflection on what we do and why we do it and what we think is going to happen when we do things. Yes yeah do you know one of the most challenging that right in the opening part of the book he really challenges us by uh, using saying but something like this uh, thinking of behavior problems in your classroom the parents or this uh, students' fault actually increases our level of powerlessness as a teacher. And we have to start changing our own attitudes because it is so easy, isn't it? Just to go, oh, it's just that kid's fault. It's the parent's fault. It's everybody else's fault. But actually, he really drums in through the book and particularly at the beginning about taking responsibility for the actual behaviors that are happening in your classroom. Exactly. And he actually, he says it directly, those who take responsibility can make a difference. Those who don't take responsibility can make no difference at all. And so when we start asking the kids to be responsible for the behaviour, because actually, ultimately, the behaviour that children are showing isn't really a problem with the, for them, that he, he talks about behaviour often being a solution. We might not see it as a great solution, but for the child, it's solving a problem that they've currently got. So that's their solution. So the behavior isn't a problem for the child. The behavior is a solution for the child. The behavior might be a problem for us. Yeah, because he talks about that teachers assume that their impression of what happened uh, or what they saw is actually the, the truth the correct one, but actually it might not be if we truly stop and listen and talk through the child is just using the skills they have to solve the problem that they have. And it might be a different problem that we have. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I know he talks about in here that, you know, we need to look at what's influencing the behavior, you know, that we have expectations, we put demands on the children we are asking them to do things that they may not have the resources or the ability to do. And I know you'd really like the skill ceiling part of this, didn't you? Yeah, well, first of all, he talks about the idea that kids do well if they can. And this actually comes from Dr. Ross Green and his research. And he believes that kids do the best they can with the information they have and that we actually need to acknowledge that first of all. And then 
we need to be able to say, hey, what is the skill ceiling of these kids? Because if we take them to a, what he calls the skill ceiling and they can't go any further, why would we expect them to? You and I can't do things that we can't do. So where is the skill ceiling? And of course, that is going to be different for every child. And that's, and that's beholden on us then to do the reflection and to actually get to know our children. And also then to say, if the skill ceiling's here, what do we need to teach? And how do we teach it in order to maybe lift that ceiling a little or offer them other options? You know, there's that old saying, if all you've got is a hammer, then every problem looks like a nail. For some of our children, if, if they've got very few skills and strategies to deal with frustration, and if we're teaching really well, our kids should sense frustration at some stage because we should be pushing their, their, um, their horizons out. And so if, if the only skill they have with frustration is to, to run away, then that's going to be a really ineffective strategy when they get frustrated. So we need to then, it's beholden on us then to teach them other strategies, give them other tools mm. so that then they can hopefully find other ways to deal with their frustration yes. in the moments when they hit. Yeah, so giving them those actual skills and teaching them explicitly, which, of course, we will be talking about a lot in many of our coming podcasts. One of the things I really loved, Meg, that he talked about was why kids go to school. This was really intriguing to me. And he said, you know, ask a five-year-old, why do they go to school? Well, if you ask a five-year-old, Meg, what would they Probably to, to learn stuff, to learn to read maybe to do maths, to write, that sort of thing. Yeah. So kids are told you go to school at five, you'll learn to read, write and count and do all of those things. But then ask them again at nine years old, why are you at school? And they're like, well, I've learned to read and write and count. I don't know why I'm at school. And often they don't have the same purpose anymore. And so he talked about research that says what actually keeps kids in school and particularly between the ages of 11 and 14, there were two things that really kept them in school. That was their friends, having a really good friend group around them and a positive relationship with an adult. So obviously probably a teacher and, or it could be the librarian or it could be the caretaker, but a adult, significant adult in the school that they, that they stay for. And it's not until a 14 and above that they start thinking, oh, I really want to do X, Y, Z as a career. And therefore I need to do these subjects and I need to do this to be able to get me there. So it, it re-engages them into the school curriculum. So for me, it was a really good reminder of those middle years of school where we start to lose them uh, because they don't necessarily have a purpose. Yeah, and, and making that purpose explicit too because there's often things where we sit there and we go, you know, they didn't do what we wanted them to do, but they didn't know what we wanted them to do, so how could they? Yes. You know, if we don't share our expectations, it makes it very hard. It's a bit of a lottery whether somebody's going to hit the mark or not. I have to say, when you were talking about that, that relationship thing, it made me think of some research that was done in New Zealand. It was actually around smoking and teens taking up smoking. And they looked at this very simple question they asked as part of this research was, does anybody know your name at school? Now, the children who responded, and this was with young teens, the children who responded with no 
we're significantly more likely to be involved in antisocial behaviours like smoking, vandalism, truism, all that sort of, truantism, sorry, all that sort of stuff. And their reasoning behind that was because if I don't think that anybody in authority knows my name, I have no reason to follow the rules or the norms or the laws of this particular community because I don't belong, I don't fit. And I think like when Bo actually says himself in the book, he said that school should be a place where everyone has a place so they can learn. And so that means that in a lot of our schools, we need to be thinking more broadly and doing things a little differently for some of those kids that that find that really hard. Mm. Yeah, Uh, it's really powerful, isn't it? Oh, hugely, hugely challenging. I was very fortunate because I was um, lucky enough to spend a day with Bo in a a course where he he was presenting, I was furiously writing notes and going, oh, this guy's amazing. And one of the things he talked about was he talked about with research, when we talk about best practice in education anyway, he said, generally speaking, best practice in research tends to say this works for the majority of people. So you can use the good old 80-20 rule. And so if you sit there and you say, so best practice says this will work for about 80% of the people. That means there's 20% of the people that that best practice doesn't work for. So we need to do something different. Mm. And I think a lot of what he's talking about in this book is really about what do we do for those 20% of students for whom what we normally do for most people works. You know, we can, we can just reject them and say, well, they don't fit into the model because we've studied best practice and they just aren't, aren't following the rules. And that's that blame model which you talked about earlier, which renders us powerless. Or we can say, hey, this is working for the majority. Let's roll with the majority with this. But what are we going to do differently here to make this work and make it so that school is a place where these guys actually belong? They have a place here too. I think there's there's such a responsibility of us as teachers to make sure that happens, that all children Uh, feel like they belong and they have a purpose and they know why they are there and they're doing purposeful things I think is uh, so important I tell you one of the things that really shook my world was a chapter that's uh, chapter five called children learn nothing from failure now for 27 years I've been teaching kids have got to make mistakes we we make mistakes from learning let them fail you know all of this and I'm like what do you mean kids don't learn from failure of course I'm thinking of course they do but then I had to you know take a deep breath and open my mind (laughs) to uh, being a continuous learner and he quotes some research which I absolutely loved which says it's actually not until the age of 15 that children really learn from failure. That what happens is they have to have a huge base of success to be able to learn from failure. So he said um, under the age of 11, under the age of 11, that's when they need the success. They need hundreds and hundreds of tiny little successes so that when they do fail, they can go back to and look, look, I've done it 25 times already. I can do it again. Or, you know, they're on their skateboard and they're trying a new trick and they fall off and they, and it hurts. If they've done many, many tricks and learned many tricks up until that point, they're going to go, well, I've been here before. I've fallen off. I've got success behind me. 
I will just keep going. But if it's the first time they've done a trick on the skateboard and they're not going and they fall off and they hurt themselves, they're going, well, that's it. I can't skateboard. So <laughs> we need to make sure that we give them hundreds and hundreds of little success points so that when when they're older and it, take or leave it between the ages of 11 and 15, some uh, learn from mistakes and some don't, but it's not until after 15. So that was really eye-opening for me. Yeah. And I think I think it comes back to, to uh, that's our role as, as teachers, as parents, as leaders, is to help them identify those small success spaces or successes that they have along the way. Like I remember when, when my son was probably two and a half, three years old and was, you know, going into that real strong independence thing. And he wanted to carry his own plate with his toast to the table. And invariably, he would take the plate and he would drop the toast on the floor. The dog thought it was a fantastic system. My son didn't think it was so hot and nor did I. So we had to disappoint the dog and do something different. And so what I did was I actually took a plate and I put four blocks on it, just like we cut his toast into fours. And I said, let's practice. Let's practice carrying it and we'll see how many, how often we can get to the table. And so they all fell off the first time. And I went, that's okay, because the plate didn't fall down. So we're already getting better. And the dog hasn't eaten, so that's good. And you're not worried because you're not hungry now. So there we go. And so we put the, the four blocks on, we try it again. He gets out of the kitchen. So we celebrate the fact that he got out of the kitchen. And so it's not not making mistakes. It's actually being able to identify the success that occurs within the mistake or occurs beforehand, I think, is is. The, the way I kind of made sense of that for me as a as a parent and as a teacher mm -hmm. and we can and we can actually deliberately plan in opportunities for success I think it, we're going towards a big goal it's that simple thing of letting children see their own progress isn't it so giving them you know like a little doing a handwriting sample at the beginning of the term and then another one at the end of the term so that they can see their progress or having clear criteria so they can see themselves getting better and so that they know oh yeah when I do a title page this is the criteria for a title page this is what I used to do and now look what I do look how different it looks and so they can see themselves growing and they can see themselves getting better and even having those exemplars of where they're going to move to is so important and again I think it's just the little things like you know they spell a spelling word and it's like let's just tick the letters that they got correct rather than focusing on the ones they didn't wow you got four letters correct today uh, but you only got three yesterday getting closer so it's like the blocks again right it's like we haven't got there yet but we're getting closer and then it occurs to me I was working in a high school recently with the learning assistants and so they're the teachers who are working with the children who aren't coping in the school system as well and or have uh, learning challenges. And one of the things we talked a lot about is those children, um, you know, 15, 16, 17 years old, they haven't necessarily experienced a lot of success in education. And so suddenly we're expecting them to learn from their mistakes. And it's like, well, hold on, they haven't even got the foundation of success. So when children haven't got that, we need to go back and step it right back and make it simple, just like the blocks on the uh, plate where it's not going to hurt anyone. It's not going to uh, have a major effect if they get it wrong while they're learning and then build them up from there. Yeah. And I think that's so important to be able to fold back 
you know, just because we've given some some potential ages, it is again about that individual and what they need. I think that's really important to keep in mind. Mm. What else did you get out of the book? One of the things I really love about Bo's approach, and it fits with Ross Green and, and several other people like Mona Delahook and lots of people, is this low arousal approach. So one part of the low arousal approach is us maintaining our calm, mm. you know, not, not jumping into the storm with whoever's having a problem at the time. And he talks about the affect regulation model. And so I'm a bit of a neuro nerd, so this really appealed to me. I'm like, whoa, look at that brain stuff. But this is this ties in, you know, like when we have somebody who's got a strategy, like they completely flip their lid, often there's a, there's a series of points that happen before that that we may not recognize or we may not recognize as strategies. So if they say they meet a frustration and so they might try something like avoiding the task, you know, how many times do you need to sharpen your pencil? 302? I don't think so. Or they might start distracting the people around them because then, you know, misery loves company. Whatever they do, it's, it's actually, again, recognizing that as a strategy. But if we come in and we go, you shouldn't be doing that, and we growl them or we give them a consequence, then they've now got this level of frustration, but now it's been heightened because the strategy didn't work. And so their, their choices are now limited about what they can do. And so that, that anxiety, that tension builds, and then they go above their tolerance level and they blow because they've got nothing left. Now, what ha what's happening in there is it's actually going into a like an almost flight fight freeze mode. And when we go into that, masses of adrenaline course through our bodies to get us ready to fight or fly. Adrenaline spikes really quickly and drops off quite quickly. But what often happens is with the adrenaline, we get a spike of cortisol. Now, cortisol stays in our system for a long time and holds us in that heightened sense of awareness to keep us safe. Because what we've done with this child is we've made them feel unsafe. Not, not intentionally, but that's what's happened. And so what often happens is we see that the, the meltdown stops or the tantrum or whatever you want to call it, and there are, tantrum is different to meltdown, to be perfectly honest, but that really intense behavior drops off and they start to appear calm. Now, often as teachers, when we see them start to appear calm, we leap in to do the rectification, the fix it, the, you know, you need to own your behavior. How are you going to fix this? Da, 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 da. But at that time, internally, they still have masses of cortisol. So they're still actually at a really heightened um, state and they are likely to flare up again really fast if we go in too quick. And so this affect regulation model is really saying when they spike, we need to allow them to come down and to come right down. And it might mean that we actually don't, and, and yes, we should be holding them to account for, for behavior, particular behavior that affects others or breaches our rules or whatever else, but it might not be appropriate to have that conversation today. It might be something that we hold over till tomorrow. We need to think about where the brain is at, where that individual is at, and when are we going to get the best bang for our buck? because if they're still in a heightened state, they're not going to hear anything we've got to say anyway. One of the things that Bo says in the book, which I really loved, was distraction is better than setting limits and it can uh, re dramatically reduce conflict. 
So instead of saying, that's it, you can't go to PE today or, you know, that's it, you're staying in at lunchtime, what would be better is to distract them with something else while they're calming down or while they are regulating themselves. And then you reduce the conflict and then you can finally up the conversation. Yeah. It's a little bit like with dog training, you know, distract and redirect. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we didn't mean the children are like dogs we're just going to say that sorry (laughs) we are not drawing parallels it was just a a metaphor so I'm just putting that out there (laughs) thank you Karen (laughs) one of the uh, other parts I love is the you become a leader when someone follows you and uh, Bo talks about leading is not the same as being in charge And I really liked that idea that we want to make sure that we are doing what we need to lead these children. And actually, he says, uh, good teaching is making relevant demands of pupils in a way that enables them to live up to those demands. I know. It's big, really, isn't it? It's really big. It's really big. And he also uh, finishes the book by talking about that teachers have uh, full responsibility for leading students, but to succeed in doing so, you must show that you deserve your authority over them. Mm. And so I thought that's also uh, really, really powerful. The whole thing is a really human approach. And mm. I love that he, that he talks about teachers as being leaders because I think often in teaching, we, we're working in a hierarchical system. So it's easy for us as teachers to sit there and go, that's above my pay grade and I'll give this to somebody else to deal with now. If we're dealing with a, a difficulty with an individual in our classroom, for example, that actually that's, that's not what Bo's recommending. Bo's recommending actually be the human in the situation. You be the leader in that situation with that person and do what you can take responsibility and do what you can to help support them. By all means, bring in the group around you. You know, none of us should be doing this on our own. And I actually really like how when he breaks down into case models and he talks about when things go wrong and that they will go wrong. You know, we're human, we'll lose our call. Sometimes, you know, when somebody's mouthing off at you, you might just feel a bit intense about that and want to respond or react. And so he said, you know, look, accept that you're human but when something has gone wrong, we have the responsibility then to go back and to look through what happened, what we're going to do next. And when it happens next time, what we'll do differently. And that means that everybody in the group has to be safe enough to feel that they can own the stuff that they're not proud of. So that means when you're sitting down with your leadership team or your colleagues, being able to say, hey, look, I lost my call. And this is what I said. And then this is what happened with the child's behavior. So I know that one of the things that needs to happen in our plan going forward is I need to not lose my call. Can mm. you help me with that? And, and that's, that's a really brave, courageous thing to do. But if we bring that human element into the entire system, then we can live, live what Bo's recommending and what so many others are recommending around this respectful, reciprocal, democratic teaching. Yeah, Um, a very powerful book. Uh, Obviously, as you can tell, we're both very passionate about what we learned from it. We uh, highly recommend it. And so if we have piqued your interest, the book is called Disruptive, Stubborn and Out of Control. So it's highly recommended and uh, a great one if you've got a 
book club at your school or for professional reading as a team or a staff, really, really important. So I hope you've enjoyed our book uh, review today. Uh, a little different, but off the wall as a book review perhaps, but we've enjoyed being able to give it to you. Thank you for listening to the Teachers Matter podcast. We're eager to transform the lives of even more teachers and educators. So please remember to like and review the show wherever you listen to this podcast. It really helps. And if you enjoyed the podcast and would like to have more resources and information, head on over and join us at spectrumeducation.com.